You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. But today, we're going to be switching gears a lot, actually. We're going from a topical sermon series to expositional one. We're going to be going through a book of the Bible. And um, we're going to be going through the book of the prophet Malachi which is going to be um, exciting. And in my six and a half years of pastoring, I've never preached on a prophet at all. So it'll be uh, a learning curve for me. Um, and I've heard other people say, you know, I haven't even, I've never heard a sermon series through Malachi, so neither have I. So that should be good. Um, it'll be exciting and challenging. Um, but again, yeah, it'll be good, though, because as I've been studying it over the past few weeks, um, I found that it's amazing that the topics and, and issues that are brought up, that, that God brings up, uh, that are addressed to these people like 2,500 years ago. Uh, it's amazing how they're still incredibly applicable for us uh, and our culture today, especially for us today. Um, so, I don't know, it just goes to show that human nature doesn't really change a whole lot, no matter how much we think it does, right? Uh, and so I think we'll, we'll learn a lot and be challenged a lot as we go through it. Uh, but one of the main things I'm excited about is that uh, Malachi focuses pretty heavily on the coming Messiah. And in other words, it's pointing God's people and us, as we read it, to that first Christmas. It's pointing God's people to Jesus and our need for Jesus. Uh, so we figured because of that, it would be great to kind of lead us into the season of Advent, which is only seven Sundays away. That's crazy, hey? Christmas is just around the corner. So, so Malachi will, as, as we anticipate the coming Messiah with, with, uh, the, with Israel um, in Malachi, you know, we're going to be going into Advent. So it's going to be cool. Um, talking about Jesus and our need for Jesus. Um, anyways, before we get into the message this morning, uh, I want to first get some context uh, from the book of Malachi because it's, it is incredibly important to, to understand who's, who's speaking and who's being spoken to, right, in, in order so that we get a clearer picture uh, and understanding of the purpose and meaning of the text. And, and, and as we do that, then we can apply it to ourselves. And when we have that understanding of it, then we can apply it to ourselves. So we're going to get some context. And unfortunately, Malachi 1 verse 1 gives us most of the context that we need. So if you want to turn with me there to Malachi 1 verse 1. Which is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So first of all, who is Malachi? And the answer to that is nobody knows exactly. (laughs) Um, Nobody knows who Malachi is. Uh, What we do know is that he is the last recorded prophet in Israel until John the Baptist shows up. And then Jesus shows up, right? And we also know his name Malachi actually means messenger. So Malachi means messenger in Hebrew. So Malachi might not even be his name. Uh, it just might be his title. Like if someone, someone said after the service today, oh, did you hear that sermon by the pastor, right? Um, that's my title, right? So messenger just could be his title. So it might not even be his name. It could be his name because God does name people according to uh, their purpose sometimes in the Old Testament. We don't know. But I actually think that's kind of cool, not knowing who he is or what his name is, because really it emphasizes the fact that it's not about him, right? It's about the message that he's bringing. He's the messenger bringing the message of the Lord. That's the purpose, and that's that's what matters. So that's who's speaking. Secondly, then, let's figure out who the message is for. This is the important 
part here in, understand, in our understanding of what's going on, uh, who the message is for. And the verse clearly states that the message is for the people of Israel, right? So God's people, the descendants of Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham, right? And, and they've since separated into two tribes, the tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, at this point in history. And uh, we should note that about 50 to 100 years before Malachi was written, and it was probably written around... 450 BC or 430 BC, all this boring stuff. Some people like this historical stuff. I don't know. Um, some people are falling asleep already. Um, but the people of Israel, just 50 to 100 years before Malachi uh, came, came onto the scene, uh, the people of Israel had just been allowed to return home after, after generations of captivity in Babylon. So the Persian king said, fine, you guys can go home. I still rule over you, but you can go home. And, and for more on that, you can read through Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the whole story laid out there. Um, I encourage you to, to go and do that. Um, but what that means is that they just recently reestablished as a nation of Israel again. They just recently reestablished themselves as a nation. Uh, they'd only recently rediscovered and recommitted themselves to God and recommitted themselves to God's law. Um, they had just restored the temple of, the, of God, right? And, and they just restored the walls around the holy city of Jerusalem, which is a big part of the story of Nehemiah. Um, they had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, right? And they're building the wall. So they had just done that. Uh, and, and so in that time, things were looking up for them, right? And, and God was with them and they were with God. Um, but then fast forward a generation or two later, and once again, as is the history of God's people, as is the history of human nature, they've forgotten about God. They've grown apathetic towards his law because from their point of view, you know, God's forgotten about them. And on that note, and unlike most prophetic books, which occur during times of religious and political and, and spiritual turmoil or crazy circumstances are happening or there's, or there's or crazy like rebellion happening against God or, or they're in time of war or whatever, right? At the time of Malachi, though, nothing is happening. Nothing's happening. And that's the main problem, really. Um, the nation of Israel at this point is kind of having a post-exilic letdown, right? They, they've returned from exile and things were awesome. And then, and then over time, things just kind of became normal and, and just went downhill. Um, their faith kind of went cold. Um, because unlike in the time of Nehemiah, they're not experiencing any need or any circumstance which would cause them to rely on God and turn to God, right? And they're also not experiencing any great moves or revivals from God. Things are just normal. Um, and I think that we can often relate to that uh, in our lives sometimes. Uh, it's, it's like they're in a time between revivals, right? A time when many, many of us as Christians, we just get caught in our everyday lives and, and our, and our day-to-day routines, right? And, and over time, we forget to spend time with God and, or even remember what God has done for us. And we just kind of become lazy in our faith and, and, and we just kind of start to backslide a little bit. And then we start, you know, following God less and less. Right? And that's what's happening here. Their, their faith had gone cold and caused them to become apathetic, ungrateful, and forgetful for God and his law. But the needed, I think, was a day like today. Like we have Thanksgiving, right? Uh, a day that they could look back and be reminded of all that God had done for them. But every Jewish holiday actually does that 
for them. So they have like hundreds of Jewish holidays and feasts. So I don't know what their excuse is. They, like every Jewish holiday is a Thanksgiving for them as they look back and remember what God had done for them. So I'm not sure what their excuse is, but they had forgotten. Their faith had gone cold. But again, when we forget what God has done in our lives especially during a time where he seems distant, we can start to become filled with that sense of ingratitude where that projects this attitude toward God that says, well, what have you done for me lately? Right? What have you done for me lately? Which in turn can make us apathetic or rebellious or, or just nonchalant in our faith, uh, like the nation of Israel, as Malachi speaks to them. So now that we have kind of this foundational context of what's going on, let's, let's read through the first five verses of Malachi. That's what we're going to go through this morning. So Malachi 1, 1 to 5. I'm going to be drinking a lot of water because I'm sick. So I apologize. Malachi 1, 1 to 5. This is the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a good and loving Father. Lord, that we are here this morning because of your grace that's been poured out for us at the cross. Because you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to make a way for us, Lord God. And that you uh, are building this church. And this is all because of and for you, Lord God. So help us to turn our hearts towards you as we go through your word. And and, and let that word just be written on our hearts, Lord, and in our minds. That we might be changed and molded. And that we might grow closer to you, Lord, in, in our relationship with you and in our likeness to you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So about a month ago, I was listening to the radio, and, and they were interviewing um, the mother of, of one of the, the murderers of, of, I guess I should laugh, that's not funny. Um, of, there's been a lot of murders in Lethbridge in the last year and a half, right? And they were interviewing the mother of one of the, the, the murderers, and, um, and she was asked in the interview how she feels about her son doing what he did. And unfortunately, since this is a radio interview, this isn't verbatim, but she said something along these lines. She said, my heart breaks for the victims and their families. My, my heart breaks knowing that my child could do something like this. And, and if he did it, he deserves whatever legal punishment he's going to get. I agree with that. But at the end of the day, he's still my son, and I love him, and I want the best for him. And after hearing that, I was just like, wow, what a, what a burden that she has to bear, right? In the midst of knowing what her son is capable of, in the midst of her own life being just turned completely upside down, in the midst of all the hate mail that she's getting because of what her son did, and in the midst of, of knowing what the legal consequences are going to be for her son, yet she still loves him. She still wants to help him. And I can't imagine how hard it would be to have to emotionally and mentally you know, wrestle with that level of horror uh, with what her son did while having so much love for him at the same time. 
that's quite quite a burden to bear, right? And at the at the same time, or in a similar way, this is a lot like God's burden for the people of Israel. Let's read verse one again: the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So the word oracle in Hebrew means, or at least carries the meaning of burden, of the word burden. This is a burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. So God's seeing what his people are up to, and it pains him, and it wearies him. They've turned from him and his statutes. They've spiritually polluted the temple, and most of all, they've forgotten or grown apathetic towards him. And of course, their sin against him demands judgment and consequence. But yet at the same time, he loves them deeply and he wants the best for them. I think we often forget how deeply God, God cares for us and desires the best for us. And that's why this message is of great burden. It's like he's sitting the whole nation of Israel down and, and, and having an intervention for them, right? In other words, this difficult and heartfelt message of God carries great weight and importance. It it will feel heavy and convicting for those who hear it. And I'm sure it's a burden for Malachi, the one who has to proclaim it to them. It wasn't easy being a prophet back in the day. But in the end, I think for those who respond to it with repentance, it'll actually be like a burden being lifted from them. Because as God will remind them throughout Malachi that in the end, their sin won't be their burden to bear. It should be but it won't be their burden to bear. But as it states in verse 1, it's a burden of the word of the Lord. Who is the word of the Lord? John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and became flesh, and shone as the glory of the Son of God. Who is the word of the Lord? The word of the Lord is Jesus, right? The word of the Lord is Jesus. So even in that first sentence, in the introductory sentence, God's pointing us to the truth that all this, our, our, our sinful mess, our, our deserved punishment for sin, our broken world, our separation from God, our failures, our mistakes, our weaknesses, all our heavy burdens that we're carrying, which are too great for us to carry or overcome, will actually be Jesus Christ's to bear for us. And from our place in history, we know that he already took those burdens for us at the cross. And Jesus even invites us to cast our burdens on him in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. It says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now think of how, how amazing that is, right? God considers our burdens to be his burdens, right? He takes our burdens upon himself so that we can be set free from them. That's pretty incredible. So before we go any further this morning, I want to remind us all that, that, that if we're carrying burdens, whether it's guilt over sin, whether it's addictions, whether it's pride, whether it's insecurities, whether it's bitterness or, or unforgiveness that, that we're holding, whether it's trust issues that we have or anger or anxiety, and something's going on in your life and you're stressed out. The list goes on, right? If you're carrying burdens this morning, God's reminding us that through Christ, the word, we don't have to carry them anymore. We can lay them down at the cross. We can exchange them for for the yoke and burden of Christ, which is easy and light. 
And that's the, that's the, the beauty of the message in Malachi. That as God makes them realize their sin, he also gives them hope. And he reminds them that the coming Messiah, Jesus, will be the one to restore them into glory. Or as the main title of our, our sermon series declares, through Jesus, righteousness will rise. And it will rise from the grave, and it will rise because of God's deep and yearning love for his people. And that's another amazing thing about God's word here, that, that before he gets into rebuking Israel, before he gets into showing them how they've turned from him, before he gets into what the consequences will be for it, he reminds them, first of all, before he says anything else, he reminds them that he loves them. In verse 2, the, the first part of verse 2, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord. It's the first thing he says to them. I have loved you, says the Lord. And Ian uh, Gugweed, I don't know how to say his name, writes, The book of Malachi contains six oracles or disputations that each begin with a saying of the people to which the Lord responds through his prophet. Most of these oracles are searching rebukes. It is striking, however, that before the Lord rebukes the people, he begins by affirming his electing love for them. So he's, he's affirming to them and saying, I love you, before he says anything else. Um, and the cool thing is that word for love here is in perfect tense. So it's talking about the past, present, and future. Right? He, God's saying to them, before we get into this, before we get into this, this, this burden, right? I want you to know that I love you and that I've always loved you. The reason you're here now and, and, and the reason we're actually having this conversation is because I never stop loving you. Because I care about you. Because I don't want you to be separated from me in your sin anymore. Because I want you to walk and dwell in my love. And that's the heart of God. That's the heart of God for them. That's the heart of God for us. Unfortunately, our hearts, I think, often sound like Israel's here. And this is the response. Verse 2a, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, Israel says, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? God loves them and has always loved them. But sadly, it seems they've since forgotten or have begun, begun to doubt God's love for them. Which is why in their hearts they've begun to ask, you know, how have you loved us, God? And I can wager a guess that, that many, if not most of us, have experienced moments or seasons in, in our lives, right, where we could easily ask that question to God, how have you loved us? How have you loved me? Do you even love me? You know, I'm, I'm not feeling the love right now, right? Or maybe some of us think, oh, I don't, I don't deserve to be loved, so we're pushing his love away. You know, whether we're feeling like, like this because life took a difficult turn, right? Maybe, maybe you lost somebody, and it hurts. Maybe, maybe you're just feeling alone or, or just not feeling God's presence, no matter how much you're, you're, you're seeking it. Maybe things didn't work out the way you thought they would or the way you thought God was planning in your life. And so you're confused, right? Or, or maybe, maybe you haven't been pursuing God in your life so he's starting to feel distant. Or maybe you've been hurt and that's caused you to just put up this, this defensive wall up. Whatever it is, you know, there, there are and there will be times in our lives where God is going to feel absent or seem like he doesn't care at all. Read through the Psalms and you'll find, you'll find many desperate and questioning cries out to God, even from David, a man after God's own heart, you know, you know, screaming out to God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you abandoned your people? When will you return to us? Or as the black-eyed peas so eloquently ask, where is the love? 
So due to God's apparent lack of movement among them at the time, right? As I mentioned earlier, the, the nation of Israel had become apathetic. They'd become bitter. They'd become skeptic of God's love for them. But as we go through Malachi, we're going to start to understand why they're feeling that. We'll understand that the separation that they were feeling from God wasn't because God quit loving them. He had always loved them, as he says. But in actuality, it was Israel who quit loving him. But it's easy to blame God or doubt God if we're not faithfully following him or in relationship with him, right? Or if we've forgotten the joy of our salvation and and what he's done for us in the past. I've talked to a few people over the years who've who've come to me and said, you know, God God feels distant. I'm not feeling God and and their faith is wavering and, and which, which definitely sucks when you're feeling like that. But my first question for them is, is usually, you know, well, are you praying? Are you reading the Bible? Are you hanging out with other Christians? And this isn't always the case, but usually the answer to that question is a sheepish no. And I'm saying, of course, of course you're going to feel distant from God. You're not, you're not hanging out with him, Right? If you're not hanging out with your your friend, you're going to start to to grow apart and and feel distant from them, right? We have to be hanging out with God. Or of course we're going to feel distant from him. Of course we're going to start turning from him. So, So when God says to Israel, I have loved you, they should be filled with this, with this deep gratitude and, and, and thanksgiving. They should be filled with thanksgiving. They should be cooking up a turkey and inviting the family over to celebrate all that God has done for them. But because their idea of God and God's love had grown stale, they see themselves as the victim. They're like, oh, how, well, how have you loved us, God? You know, thinking like God's ignoring them or never doing anything for them except make them do religious chores and, and, and take their money and, and make them go to church or boring stuff like that. Simply put, they haven't tangibly experienced God's love lately, so they feel that they have the right to question God's love for them. And in reality, they don't have that right. They don't have the right to question God's love. God doesn't need to defend his great love for us. He is love. Later on in Malachi, he tells them to test his love, but it's in a different context. He's saying, take a chance on my love and see what happens. But right here, they're questioning his love like it doesn't exist. Yet, because he does love them and wants the best for them, He mercifully acknowledges and answers their doubt, an ungrateful attitude with a history lesson of his love for them. And that's how I'd like to spend the last portion, last third third of the message this morning, talking about how much God loves his people and therefore how much God loves us. Because like the nation of Israel, I think we also constantly need to be reminded of God's love, and not only as as a comfort, but so that we don't forget it, so that we remain in it, and so that we don't turn from it. So we need to be reminded of God's love. So I got four points here on, on how God loves us. So he's answering their question, how, how do you love us, God? And number one, God loves us by telling us. When you love someone, you tell them, right? You let them know. Over and over again, you tell them, I love you, I love you. And I won't get too deep into this point because we've kind of been talking about it already, but it's amazing that we have a God 
who's in the business of constantly reminding us and telling us that he loves us, just as he's doing with Israel here. And, and we need that. We need God to constantly tell us, I love you, I love you. And there are many ways that, that he does, does that even for us today, how he tells us he loves us. He tells us through the living word that he loves us. Jesus loves me because the Bible tells me so, right? He tells us in his word that he loves us. He reminds us of his love through his Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And he reminds us that he loves us in the way that we love one another. And this is kind of what we were talking about in our series in church, people. Uh, but I'm going to remind us again, 1 John 5, 7 and verse 12. You can read all of 1 John 5 or the whole context, but it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So when we, when we love someone, when we love each other, we're doing the work of God in, in, in telling them that God loves them. And I think that's significant and it shows how important it is that we are loving each other because we need that constant reminder that God loves us. So that's point number one. God loves us by telling us that he loves us. And number two, God loves us by showing us. God loves us by showing us that he loves us. So when you, when you love someone, obviously you do loving things for them, right? You do things that show them that you love them. And one of the ways God showed his love to the nation of Israel was in choosing them to be his people. He even sealed his promise to them by making a covenant with Abraham. And a covenant is stronger than a contract. When you're, when you're in a covenant, you, you do your side of the bargain, you know, even if the other person fails theirs. You, you keep your part of the, the covenant agreement. Um, and so this is a, this is a intense thing that he did with Abraham. And, and this covenant was passed down to Isaac and then to Jacob, who was later renamed Israel by God, which is where the nation of Israel gets their name from, from, from Jacob's name that was changed to Israel. And so he reminds them of this, that, that he showed them his love. When, when he says in Malachi 1, 2-3, he says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. So for the, for the record, the, the word hate here doesn't mean it in the way that we'd interpret it today. Uh, it actually has the same connotation as when Jesus tells us to hate our father and mother and, and brother and sister so that we can be his disciples. Right? Jesus isn't actually telling us to break the, the commandment to honor our father and mother or the commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves. Right? But he's telling us there to love and commit to Jesus above all others, before all others. That's, that's, this is a covenant language, you could say. Right? To completely commit everything you are to one thing over everything else. And this is like a husband and wife. This is like a, like a marriage too, right? You, you commit, husband and wife commit to each other above everything else, above everyone else. And besides, God actually blessed Esau with, with uh, land, with livestock, and with many descendants. So uh, he had a, Esau had a pretty prosperous life. So obviously God didn't hate him in the way that we'd interpret that word. But anyways, God's point here is that he chose Jacob completely over Esau. And this is significant because most Israelites, I think, probably felt this entitlement to God's covenant promise, right? Because they were descendants of Abraham and therefore heirs to the promise and covenant of God. They're probably thinking, well, God has to love us because he promised our Abraham that he would love us. And we live in a culture of entitlement, right? 
you know, where people think they deserve and, and should get everything, uh, the best of everything, without having to do anything for it. So we can, we can relate to this attitude that the, Israels, the Israelites would have, right? And like in our culture, this entitlement that the Israelites felt was completely false or, or misplaced. Because yes, God made a covenant, and he will keep it. But the point is that he didn't have to choose them specifically to be heirs to that covenant. And he proves that point when he reminds them that Esau and Jacob, as we know, or probably know, were both born as twins. So both were descendants of Abraham through his son Isaac. So they're both heirs to the promise of God's covenant, it would seem. Yet, God only chose Jacob to inherit the promise and not Esau. Does that make sense? He could have chose Esau. He could have actually chose a child from, from, from Jacob's other wife, even. She had five or six or something. But he didn't. He chose Jacob. He chose Israel. Why? Because of his sovereign grace. In other words, the people of Israel were God's people because God ch- chose to show them He chose to show them his love, and he chose them to be set apart as his people. Not because they were more special, or because they earned it, or because they were entitled to it, or because they were born into it, or because they deserved it, which in fact they didn't. If you know the story of Jacob and Esau, we know that Jacob had cheated, or sinned rather, his way into getting Esau's birthright and and his blessing. So no, Jacob did not deserve the covenant blessing but they received it simply because God chose to love them and chose to show them his love. 1 John 4.19, we love, why? Because he first loved us. And this is amazing to to think about and and to ponder. And I think it's both very humbling and encouraging that you are loved simply because God chose to love you. You matter to God. He chose to love you. But when we start talking about God's sovereignty, we start thinking, oh, well, that means that we're robots. We don't have a choice in that matter. But as we see with the people of Israel, this doesn't mean that we're robots without a choice ourselves. We're still called to respond to God's love with repentance and obedience. But the point here is that God shows and showed his love in a great way just by choosing us as his own. He also shows us his love through sending Jesus to seal that and to welcome us into it. But that's point number four. I'm not there yet. So, number three. Moving on to number three. God loves us unconditionally and faithfully. So despite the fact that Israel repeatedly, generation after generation, turned from and sinned against God, uh, God's love for them, it, it never ceased. It never stopped. In their sin, they deserve judgment. They deserve the wages of sin, which is death. And God, who's holy and just and righteous, he would have been completely just in handing out that sentence to them. But unlike uh, Esau's descendants, the Edomites, who God didn't give them over to their sin like he did to them. The Edomites soon found themselves utterly destroyed by Babylon. When Babylon came and took over everything, the Edomites were, were decimated 
And their land was taken over by jackals, it says. And, but in, in Isaiah, it gives a deeper description uh, that, you know, it's just wild animals. And, and they, they, they could try to rebuild, but they won't be able to rebuild. They've just been decimated, that whole nation. So unlike them, though, God preserved and kept the people of Israel. And there were exiles in Babylon, yes, but, he, but you know, the nation of Edom didn't have that same fate. So Israel was preserved as exiles in Babylon until it was time to restore them once again in the promised land. So to clarify, Israel's sin against God should have earned them the same fate as Edom. But God's love and grace for them never wavered. Which means that, good news for us, as God's people, we can't, we can't sin our way out of God's love. Right? We, can't, we, we might face earthly consequences for our mistakes and our sin, but bottom line, no matter what we, do, what we do, we can't run, we can't disqualify ourselves from God's love for us. Nothing and no one can separate us from it. God is faithful, he's steadfast, he's quick to forgive, and he's unconditional in his love for us. His word never fades, his will is always accomplished, and his promise always endures. And the good news for us Gentiles, right, as non-Israelites, is that through Christ we can become heirs to that enduring promise of love. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Heirs according to promise, just like Jacob. And since God's promises endure, and they're unconditional in Christ, we can know that we're eternally loved, and that, that, that love will never end. So even when we're not feeling the love so to speak, or, or if we're feeling undeserving of his love, we can rest and hope in that truth that God's love for his people is steadfast, it's unconditional, and it's never wavering. And number four, God's love is personal. God loves us personally. And he wants us to know him, and he wants us to experience the love that he has for us. But again, in order to do this, he has to remove the, the barrier of sin between, between us and him. He has to make us righteous. He has to make us holy as he is holy. That's why he promises the coming Messiah throughout Malachi. And from our perspective, why he sent the Messiah. Because if we're not feeling close to God or if we're, if, we're, you know, if we're not feeling the love of God, know this, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, our perfect sacrifice, he took on and, and overcame the burden of sin at the cross. Right? He defeated it, he exchanged it with his righteousness so that we can now approach God with confidence and we can know his love. And if you don't know that love, I believe that God has called you today. God has chosen you to receive his love and grace in your life. And all you have to do is confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. And this is called repentance, which means turning your life, your mistakes, your guilt, your, your pride, your sin, and turning that all over to Jesus in exchange for his grace and his forgiveness. In other words, let Jesus take that heavy burden you're carrying from you this morning. And as you do, you'll find like a weight being lifted off of you. You'll be free to love God and know the love of God. And for those that have already experienced this love of, love of God through Christ, 
Let us remember that God's unfailing and perfect love not only demands a responsive praise, but when truly received, it should light a fire of incredible joy and constant gratitude in our hearts to not only desire to worship God with our voice, but to also want to live for him and glorify him in all that we do. Malachi 1 verse 5 says, Your own eyes shall see this. Your own eyes shall see my love. And you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So especially on this Thanksgiving day then, let's, let's overcome our apathy, our ungrateful hearts, and our forgetfulness. And instead, let's remember what the Lord has done. With our own eyes, let's see his love. Let's remember with thankful hearts his love for us and all that he's done for us and in us because of his love. And let's remember most of all how his great love to us was put on full display at the cross. Romans 5.8 says, But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's incredible. Despite our sin, despite our doubts, despite our shortcomings and everything else, God chose us. God chose you through Christ to be his beloved. 1 John 3 verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. I don't know. I think that should conjure up in our hearts a joyful and thankful response of worship and praise to God. And if that doesn't, I don't know what will. God chose you. God chose to love you. And he sent Christ to prove it and to make it possible. So let's celebrate that this morning. I'm going to pray and then we're going to have communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that even though uh, your word through Malachi was, was to Israel, Lord God, I thank you that even as we go through it, Lord, you're speaking to us. Lord God, that you're softening our hearts. Lord God, that you're, you're bringing us back into your presence, Lord God, and reminding us how much you love us. Lord God, I thank you, um, you know, even on this day of Thanksgiving, that we have so much to be thankful for, Lord. We have this church, we have our, our families, we have this, this community, we have jobs, and, and, and we live in Canada, Lord. Just We have so much to be thankful for, Lord, but nothing compares to the grace and love that you've, you've shown us through Christ. Let us not forget, let us not forget, even when we're not feeling the love, let us not forget that you've shown your great love to us already through sending Jesus Christ to take our sin at the cross. To cover us in his righteousness so that we could know you and know your love, Lord. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.